It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. WELLEVATOR is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. Today's guest has knowledge, experience, expertise in a subject matter I don't know if we've ever explored on the show before, which is adoption. Maybe it's come up a little bit. I think some of our guests were adopted themselves, but I don't know if we've even had parents on the show that have really delved into the adoption process if they've gone through it themselves. And adoption is something that I feel very ignorant of but very, very curious about. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this. And it's something that I've considered off and on throughout my life, as I've talked about on the show. I don't have a lot of clarity in terms of whether or not I'll be a parent. It's something that I'm, I don't know if neutral is the right word, but uh, I feel like it's not a huge priority for me. If it happens, it happens. And adoption's something that crosses my mind because as a woman, there's this big biological consideration. There's this pressure to have children when you, quote, can, whatever that means for our individual bodies or people having specific ideas around when you should have children in terms of your energy and your age, your health, all these factors. And in my head, adoption's like, okay, if biologically doesn't work out for me and I really want to have children, adoption feels like an option for me. And then from an environmental and kind of global caring perspective, I suppose, adoption also feels like something worth considering, but I've never really looked into it. I have very minimal ideas around what it means. From my perception, it feels maybe risky, I suppose, like purely out of ignorance, like, okay, what is this child going to be like that I adopt? And kind of reminds me, and not to minimize it, but what some people say about animal adoptions, right? And one of the common misconceptions I hear over and over again is, well, if you adopt an animal, you're not going to know what its history was beforehand. And you might get an animal that's out of control, as if like we can ever really control an animal, even if it's purebred or from, you know, you've had it since it was a baby. And I feel like a lot of people say the same things about child adoption. It's this fear that this child has a bad history and that's why they're being adopted or the parents didn't want it or all of these kind of like heavy emotions around adoption. And then the other side of it is that it feels complex and maybe expensive and long process. So I actually think the more I talk about this, There seems to be a lot of weight on the cons of adoption versus the pros of it. And Wendy, I'm curious if this is something that you, well, I guess it's harder for you because you're so in this. So you're going to have a completely different perspective than me, obviously. But if you can, with all this awareness you have, think about these misconceptions and how common they are. Like, I imagine I'm not alone in these thoughts, but maybe I am. So so let's kind of start there with, How many of these things that I just mentioned are misconceptions and how common are they to have these misconceptions? Yeah, I think you probably have a knowledge of adoption that most people have of adoption because adoption doesn't happen that frequently. It's so narrow. A lot of people don't build their family that way. And so there were several things, I guess, that you mentioned that I tuned into as you were speaking. And one of the things I heard you say is like adoption as a bit of a plan B to being able to have children biologically. You know, I think that's a very popular consideration of adoption because we put so much value on biological relations in our lives. You know, people will say blood's thicker than water and we have a lot of, you know, those like family 
not like memes, but like platitudes that are just like little memes. It's like family is everything. Blood is thicker than water, blah, 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 blah. And I think what we learn about in communities that struggle with biological family, whether that be people who come into child welfare or even like LGBTQ youth who get kicked out of their homes, what we do is we find family for ourselves in other ways. And so I think that being in the space of adoption has really broadened my internal sense of who my family is, my value around the people I choose to continue to be in relationship with. And as I've kind of grown and navigated and lived, I guess, I've realized that there are so many beautiful ways to build family. And I hope that one day society sees that, that there are so many ways to build family and there are so many ways family comes into our life. You know, we marry into family. We have biological children. We adopt children. We find friends and we find, you know, friends who are as good as our siblings or we say as they're as close to me as my sibling, right? Like I know so many people who are just like, this is my sister. And it's like actually, quote unquote, their friend. That's just like that overall openness and complexity of there being so many ways to build that sense of permanency and security for oneself. And adoption is just one of those many, many options. The other thing that caught my attention is that you thought about animal adoptions. And so I'm actually in Canada. And in Canada, we know that when they started the child welfare system, they modeled it after like the animal welfare system. And so it doesn't actually surprise me to hear you like associate it that way, because some of it's early kind of the origin story, as it were. And historically, I think a lot of these early ways of doing things continue to impact adoption and child protection. So yeah, it was just interesting for me to hear you say that. And then it like put that light bulb off in my brain. Yeah, that is really interesting. And something that comes up for me as you're describing it that way is how in a lot of different ways we and I'm speaking very broadly, but many people have a desire to feel pure, like this idea of I'm keeping it in the family, or even the term purebred for an animal, right? A dog, for example, that's just one breed of dog. Pure breed, maybe that's the word I was looking for. <laughs> so there's like this almost like elitist or purity culture around that because it feels like that's going to be a better dog in that case. And to your point, too, is that family, maybe if it feels more pure, that you have a deeper connection with somebody, you can trust them more. But that's not always true, of course. It's just this bizarre mindset, at least in America, from my limited experience here. And certainly, there's a lot of issues with race when it comes to these things, too. I mean, all the judgments people have about only having children with someone of the same race or the same financial background or the same class or the same part of the country or the world. I mean, we place a lot of judgments on like mixing together. And so I imagine that that's got to be a big issue with adoption as well as like, well, they're not purely part of our family or are they from the same country? Will we understand each other? Like all these different factors that I feel sad about, right? Because to your point, you're creating family when you're bringing someone into your life, even if they're not someone you're adopting, they could be. I mean, people can use that term very loosely, right? Like I've heard that during the holidays, like, oh, you don't have family nearby. I'll adopt you for Thanksgiving. You can come to my home and spend Thanksgiving with me or whatever holiday it is. And you can feel like you're part of the family or you are part of the family in that sense. And that stuff brings me joy versus people feeling like they're alone because they don't have that pure sense of family, if that makes sense. So I'm very curious on your conceptions or perceptions around purity. And yeah, I'll pause there. That's a really interesting observation to make. And I guess my mind kind of turns to like in two directions. And the first one is, I think back to what you were saying about the pressures of being a parent specifically as like a woman or someone with a uterus, right? Like, women are clearly told by society that we're val our value largely lays in our like sexual reproduction. And when people cannot reproduce or biologically have children, there's a large amount of grief in that process. And I think that is interesting because I think that is something to do with all of that social expectation and that connection and that ability to draw a clear line 
And I feel like there's something in our minds that it's like my biological children are like a clear line from me to them. And it's an interesting perception because I think we also sort of assume like, oh, our biological kids are going to be the same as us or more similar. And I think there's a lot of truth to that because we just know that biology, when you share, you know, genetics, you have similarities. That's just part of science. But I think there's this like weird disconnect that it's like, oh, this person who's come through child welfare or like from another country that's struggling, it's the savior complex that comes in, right? It's like you come from something that I judge. And usually that's poverty, mental health and addiction, right? A lot of these young people come from either like countries that are, you know, not doing too great or they are adopted domestically. So that's within the same country, which is like the one that happens most frequently is adopting within your country. And I think there's a lot of, again, like class differentiation specifically in this system that's very challenging because when we look at the struggles of the families whose children come into child welfare, like what gets us there? It's those things, it's poverty, it's mental health, it's struggling with their own family dynamics. And maybe they had challenges with violence in their own families growing up. And then that translates down to your children, right? And then we have sort of well-off and, you know, talking about the racialized piece of this again, you know, well-off, well-to-do white people predominantly who are middle-class, you know, have probably own a house. And there's such a power imbalance in that. And such a, yeah, like that idea of like, you come from this impure place that is not of myself that I don't know, I've never thought about it that way. But there's something that's like just wrinkling my brain with this. (laughs) Yeah, it's fascinating to reflect on, especially from like a very personal standpoint of thinking about all the things that led me to create what I believe adoption to be right, like the journey to something that I haven't studied or focused on. And, you know, it's like anything else where you have a limited idea of something that is based off of conversations that you've had with people or things that you were taught growing up or how many people in your life that you know have been in that situation. You know, as I'm sitting here thinking about my direct experiences with adoption, off the top of my head, I don't think any of my friends have adopted. I could be wrong. I'm like, am I forgetting someone? But I'm fairly certain that all my friends had biological children. But I did grow up one of my closest friends, her older sister was adopted. So that was a huge part of my life. And when I think about how much that probably shaped my concept. Now, from one standpoint, because I grew up with these people, I didn't necessarily think anything about her that was different. You know, as a child, just I remember the same things about people of different races and different sexualities and how I had this like pure child-like mentality about them until other people started to share things and put things in my mind, right? But when I think back to the purity on the other sense of being a child and just taking someone kind of at face value, like, oh, you're this person in my life and I am not thinking about where you came from type of mentality. It was just my friend's sister. I wasn't thinking about her as being the adopted sister until other people started bringing it up. And then I just step back and think, oh, okay, what does it mean for this person to be adopted? And kind of simultaneously, not a lot of deep discussion around these things because I think adults often think children can't handle the realities, right? But I remember growing up and hearing more about my friend's sister's background and how hard it was and how that shaped who she was. And it's a fascinating thing to witness that has certainly impacted my viewpoints on adoption. And in some ways, I think other people were kind of infiltrating my mind because I was little, you know, and like placing their judgments around adoption on me. So it's something like I want to be more purposeful. And I'm so grateful that you're here, Wendy, to help me better understand it. So going back to this kind of initial question, what are the big misconceptions that people have around adoption that you've been working to shift or want to shift? This is so great that like you're so curious and it's also so good for me. I'm so immersed in the world of adoption. So it's like kind of nice to talk to like a newbie. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think when people think about adoption, you might think about like Brad and Angelina, like adopting like 20 million children from some next country. (laughs) Or you probably think of like a private adoption, like adopting from birth. And I think like one really big misconception about adoption, specifically when you're adopting domestically within your own country, is that often the children are a bit older. 
you know, you're looking at young people who, for very good reasons, might not have come into child welfare's protection for a few years. They might have lived with a biological or original family for several years. I actually didn't come into child welfare. So I do have child welfare experience and I am adopted, which is why I'm talking about all this. I guess that did not directly come up, but there it is. (laughs) So, you know, I came into child welfare at 13, right? And a lot of people who have the vision of adoption have the vision of a baby, not a troubled teenager, (laughs) which I was. I was a bit troubled. I mean, I was going through a lot of hard things. And I think that's the other really big one is when we think about specifically young people who get involved with systems of violence, like child protection and the criminal system, they tend to get very responsible for what's happening to them. And what is actually very normal way to react to those situations, right? And so we get frustrated when young people react in certain ways. But as we learn more about trauma and the impact of trauma and how it affects your brain, and specifically in adoption, we look at something that we kind of talk about as like developmental trauma. So it happens in your youth and usually has some kind of persistence. And so when we think about these young people, it's not like, oh, a bad thing happened to them and it kind of affected them and then they have to move on. Young people that come into child protection have navigated a life where they've had to look for safety, where many other young people don't have to do that. I'm not saying no other young people. There's a lot of people who grow up in biological homes that are very unsafe, right? So I'm not saying that it's only these young people who come into child protection or adoption, but we know that that's the experience they have because that's why child protection got involved. And instead of looking at these trauma responses, which really makes sense when you think about how much they've struggled, you start to think about it in a different way. And you start to have a little bit more compassion for it because you realize, you know, there's something about the way their brain's wired. There's something about the way they lived for so many years that's just changed the way they walk through the world. Instead of that kind of stereotypical, like, you know, high school drama where there's like the foster kid and they're the ones who are drinking and smoking and like being troubled and getting into criminal stuff and whatever. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons for that. And I want people to understand the very good reasons for that rather than casting judgment. And I mean, obviously, you have to have some accountability to your actions and learn from your mistakes. I'm not saying just run free. (laughs) But when we look at why young people feel that they've made that decision, even that is a compassionate step towards understanding how how a difficult life has changed the way their brain operates and so changed the way they behave in society. Yes. And it brings up this big question of nature versus nurture, right? And also, in a way, in your case, in my friend's sister's case, which I recall she might have been under like between five and 10 when she was adopted. I don't know for sure. But there's these years of the nurture that you receive prior to being adopted. And like, to your point, the trauma, the experiences, the mental development that happens, but your brain's still developing up until I think like 25 or something. So you have a lot of years to continue developing and depending on the family situation you go into, you may have the opportunity to do a lot of deep work on yourself, right? Or not. And it's really fascinating because again, going back to my personal experience, one thing that I recall is anytime my sister's friend would do, my sister's sister, I mean, wait, my friend's sister (laughs) would do something, quote, bad or wrong, whatever judgment you want to place on that, it was often attributed to her being adopted. It's like, oh, well, she's adopted and her biological family or biological mother, maybe specifically, was this way or did this thing. And so that's why she's behaving this way, right? And it's an interesting thing to examine because, A, like that might not be true. It just feels like an easy knee-jerk explanation for something. And B, like, does that give this person who was adopted an excuse for the rest of their life? Like, well, I was adopted and I went through trauma and thus I can always blame it on that. Or I'm used to other people blaming on that. So I start to blame it on it. Or do the parents have this, quote, excuse to always blame it on the biological family and not take responsibility themselves? And then again, that gets passed on to me, even as someone outside the family who's observing this, but hearing that message over and over again oh, it's because she was adopted. And I'm curious, Wendy, if you feel like that, I don't want to like say 
like judge even that experience because you obviously don't know this person. (laughs) But A, again, is that very common? How do you feel about that being kind of constantly pushed on someone? Did you experience that yourself or people making judgments on you because you were adopted? And how did that make you feel if that happened? You know, when I think about questions like this, I often think of, I'm not going to say her name correctly, Chimamanda Adichie Ngochi, and she talks about stereotypes. One of the things she says about stereotypes that they are harmful because they are untrue, but because they tell a simple story. And so, you know, me hearing, oh, because she was adopted, I know there's truth in that. I know that there's truth of some of the experiences she's having internally and the way that's expressing and coming out is because of this really profound and quite strange experience that children are really not prepared for. Children's brains are not ready to change caregivers, like under like any circumstances, right? Like it's just weird for children's brains to do this. And so we kind of put these young people in this very unusual circumstance. And, you know, another thing I heard from your example is that, you know, where it becomes problematic is, oh, it's about everything that happened before the adoption. Because that lets everything that happens after the adoption off the hook, right? And another person whose work is really interesting to follow in this area is Gabor Matei, because he talks a lot about specifically relational trauma, which is kind of what we're looking at for young people with an adoption, because the trauma happens in relationship, right? And so an example of that, that's personal to me, is I was in a home where I received the silent treatment a lot um, from my parents when they were upset, not very helpful as a kid. And so, you know, one of the things I've noticed in myself is that when people I'm in relationship with now, when they're silent, I'm like, have I said something wrong? Am I boring you? Are you upset at me? Because just the presence of silence is something that alerts my experience. And again, that's like things that I've experienced for years, that when someone is being silent at me, they are upset at me. And because I experienced that in relationship, now when it happens, I have to know that about myself and check myself and remind myself that just because this person is silent doesn't mean they hate me or they're mad at me. And, you know, to kind of come back to the everything before adoption, that's actually trauma from being in my adoptive home for 15 years, because that's my adoptive parents that gave me the silent treatment, right? And so where I think the answer to the question is, lies somewhere in that, you know, if you're looking to adopt, I think there is a very unique way to parent that helps heal relational trauma. Getting into the details of that would be like really crazy. But one thing that is a good example is, you know, when a young person is having a temper tantrum, usually people say, oh, like, go sit in the corner and calm down. Young people who have lost their caregivers might feel like getting sent away is, oh, they're going to like get sent away forever and lose their caregivers. So instead of saying, go over there, calm down, it's time in. So that's like a really simple example of like the way you would maybe make adjustments in a parenting for a young person. And so I think when you heal in that relational trauma, and I think parents who adopt are kind of accountable to knowing how to do that kind of parenting to help that young person thrive, flourish, and realize their shit. Because like, it's not fun being traumatized. (laughs) It's not fun that my brain has all these crazy responses to things that literally mean nothing. Like, it's good for me to think about that and for me to be in relationship where someone can be like, oh, you're doing that thing again, where I'm being silent and you think I'm mad, but I promise I'm not. And like when the people around you can do that with you, I think that's a beautiful growth space to be in. And it means that not only the individual who has been traumatized is accountable, but their relations are too. And I think that's a beautiful thing, not like a, you're responsible for fixing other people. Like that has to be a very shared space, I think. Yeah. And it just points out how complicated this is and perhaps why some people may feel intimidated or afraid to adopt because depending on the circumstance, there may be some work involved that in their perception or belief system would be harder than raising a biological child. And again, to me, in my limited experience, it goes back to what I hear about adopting animals. It's like, well, I don't want to have to fix this dog because the previous owner was abusive. And now I have to deal with their history of trauma. And in a way, and I really use this word cautiously, but I want to say selfish, but that just feels like such a strong word here. I just don't know what else to use in this moment. I mean, it takes a lot of self-awareness and knowledge and commitment and strength to work through trauma in general. But observing what my other friends go through as with biological children, it's still a lot of work to be a parent, period. 
And there's no guarantee. I mean, I have every single child that one of my friends has is so different. They're all in different circumstances. Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. But this took extra time and effort to produce, plus it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles. When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show, so send it over to me as soon as it's live. It's just hard, period. So I don't know if it's necessarily harder to adopt a child with trauma, but I'm curious, do you think it is? harder to work through trauma? Or do you think trauma is kind of unavoidable? Is that just something relatively everyone is going to go through? It just might be different levels or types of trauma? Yeah, I mean, this is getting into my like high level belief that maybe capitalism just traumatizes us all and we're all kind of doomed until we fix it to some degree, because I think of where we spend our time, right? Like who has time to parent these days? Parenting is hard. Parenting biological children is difficult. You know, just because you don't adopt doesn't mean your child doesn't grow up and hit their teens and schizophrenia is triggered. That can happen to your biological children, right? Like there's no guarantees with biological children either, other than maybe the genes that you're passing down to them, which also change as they live, right? So I think parenting is full of no guarantees. And I think parenting is a lot of hard work. I think healing is a lot of hard work. And I think capitalism tells us that the only thing worth our time is going to our job and getting paid money to live that we have to then spend to live and eat and and house ourselves. And I just think like when I think really broad on this topic and like really zoom out, it feels like that, like who has time for family anymore? And this idea of the nuclear family is actually not like it feels like it's just the obvious thing, but it's been introduced and created like it's a colonial concept. And when we look at other concepts of family and how to raise children and that idea of the village, like mom, dad, child one, child two, two jobs, maybe one job, like it's not enough for anyone, I don't think. And I think anyone who believes that they're doing okay in that bubble has maybe been tricked a little (laughs) from my perspective and just could have so much more from life. And, you know, recently I've had a lot of loss and I actually stopped talking to my adoptive parents. We've officially ended our relationship and it's been very difficult because I know loss will be triggering for me. You know, like I reached out and I told my clients I need some time off work and I've just been spending a lot of time trying to go at my own pace and like doing something I enjoy when I do it and then going to work when I feel like I filled my cup, right? Because how can I pour my cup out for my job if I'm not spending time filling it first? And I feel like we've kind of get gotten tricked into this doing it backwards kind of way of like, go work hard and then you deserve time off. I just don't know if our bodies work that way. <laughs> the more I learn about neuroscience, the less I feel like our bodies work that way. And so, you know, harder, not harder. I'm not sure. Maybe there is a bit of a yes to that just because it feels like a bit of a swimming upstream in terms of everything society gives us about the nuclear family and how to parent and like specifically like punishment based parenting models. I'm a big parenting geek, so I like to learn lots about parenting. Um, But, you know, I guess that's kind of, yeah, when I really take a step back and look at it, it's like, I wish people could just stay home and be parents. And I think more people should be thinking more intentionally about being parents rather than just checking the box because it feels like what you're supposed to do. And I think like we would just, all parents would be a little more present and available if they realized they're on a journey where that's what they want to do rather than just kind of going with the flow and going through life. Sorry if that's judgmental. (laughs) No, it's okay. I mean, it's so interesting. Like anything that we say could be taken as judgmental, right? So I think it's so important to speak your truth. And on that note, I want to bring up something that I don't think has ever been brought up on this podcast, more likely because it hasn't been sparked in a conversation from what I recall. But It's certainly a very uncomfortable thing. And Wendy, if it's uncomfortable for you to discuss, that's okay. But reflecting on capitalism and also the reasons that people put up their children for adoption, right? There's numerous reasons. And one thing that has been 
in some discussions online that I've heard lately, especially around this time that we're recording this in December 2021, we have some changes in the, I guess, legal system about abortion. And so abortion's been being spoken about a lot, although it feels like abortion's talked about a lot, period. It's one of those hot topics that just divides people, really. And this is why it's uncomfortable. I'm curious, statistically, if that's one of the main reasons that someone chooses to give up their child for adoption is that they either don't believe in abortion or they weren't didn't have the option to have an abortion. And so they're having a child that they didn't really want. I'm curious statistically if that's one of the more common reasons. And the reason it ties into capitalism is something that I've heard people discuss lately is are abortions being tried to controlled or restricted, whatever term you want to use here, because of capitalism. Because if people choose not to have children, then we'll have less people to do work and we need people around to do all this work. <laughs> so, which to me is very frightening because if it's not clear to people already, I'm an open liberal person and I like the idea of freedom in general. I think in most cases that people should have the right to choose what they do to their body. Now, of course, that's a very complicated statement in itself and it's a very case-by-case thing. But this idea of choice and freedom feels important to me. And I don't like it when it feels like someone's being forced into doing something that especially if it's not benefiting their life or the people around them in some greater good sense. And I think because it's such a complicated thing that, well, I have a lot to say on here. So I'm going to stop for a moment and see what this is bringing up for you, Wendy. A, if the subject matter makes you uncomfortable, but B, I'm very curious about statistically how abortion plays a role in adoption in general? And then maybe what are some of the other reasons that people end up adopting or um, giving a child up for adoption? Yeah. Something is about how you're asking this question is really standing out to me and is just really interesting for me right now. And it's the idea of relinquishment. So the number of relinquishments that happen where young person with a uterus or a young woman or however you want to refer to them, or maybe they're not young, maybe they're older, but again, there's a stereotype, right? A young woman gets pregnant unintentionally and then has to make a decision because, you know, they have these options. And there's a few places I want to start with that. And one of them is even in adoptions that happen from birth, the idea of choice is very interesting because, you know, in the 60s, we know that unmarried young mothers were being forced to relinquish their babies to married people because it was thought that a single parent, you know, it was very shameful. They would take these young girls and take them away from the family for months. So no one would find out about the pregnancy, force them into this relinquishment situation. And that was not a choice. And so the number of people who actually choose to place a child at birth is very low. I'm not sure about statistics, but in Canada, I think like it happens less than 50 times a year maybe even less than that. The more frequent kind of adoption that occurs is from the child protection system. And that is largely not people who have made an intentional choice to place their children for adoption. That's people where a colonial capitalist system has interfered with the life of a family because based on the system's values, that family is not a safe caregiver. Now, that usually involves neglect and substance use and maybe domestic violence between parents. The really severe child abuse cases that people hear about are not that frequent. Most of these families are just at the shit end of the stick of capitalism. You know, they have their own intergenerational trauma. They have their own mental health. I say addiction, and addiction is not a choice. Addiction is a complex health issue, right? And so it's a lot, again, of that like power imbalance of who is the system going after in terms of taking children out of their home. And we know in both Canada and the States, there is a massive overrepresentation of Black and Indigenous young people. So racism is definitely part of the system, right? And then, you know, coming back to that idea of interracially adopting placing Black children with Black families or white children with white families or Black children with white families and all the really interesting experiences that come out of that. 
And also interesting to consider these systems are the systems that over-police Black and Indigenous people and then go back to them to adopt the children they're taking out of these homes. And my question often is, like, why isn't more work being done with these families who want to be good parents and really just don't know how or have to work five part-time jobs (laughs) to put food on the table and can never be home to parent their kids. And I think that's the more common thing that happens is it is more at the intersection of poverty and mental health issues than it is a person deciding to relinquish and place their child for adoption. And I'm very aware of the like abortion adoption debate in the States happening at the time that we're talking about this. And it was really interesting because I actually saw someone post something the other day that abortion and adoption are two different issues because abortion is a bodily autonomy thing, or at least it is if you don't think that it's a human being from the point of inception or whatever. And adoption is a human rights issue in that all of these impoverished, disenfranchised families have people coming in to take children out of their homes. The system says, we'll do something better for you, Most of the time, the outcomes of the system are very poor. Not all young people who are brought into the state care are adopted. Most of them aren't, actually, because most of them come in at that six, seven, eight and up year old age from these traumatized, this family of trauma and people don't want them. That's the attitude. People don't, like you said, it's that I don't want to deal with someone else's baggage. And that's harsh. And here's the other thing I've learned. There are people out there who want to deal with someone else's baggage. They exist. They want to help young people who have been through trauma. They want to parent those people. They feel they have the skills and they want to do that work with young people, not because they want to be saviors or rub their own, like, I'm a good person, genie bottle, whatever, because they honestly just, their life is enriched by the work. And I think that would be true of me too, because even though I'm not an adoptive parent, I do work with a lot of young people who have experienced adoption and child protection. And being on a healing journey with someone, to me, I have no words for it. Like, it's just such an honor to watch someone begin to see themselves and so cheesy, but like caterpillar to butterfly, you know, and like there's moments in people's lives where you see that happen and you see them break through. And that's so beautiful. And I almost hate to say rewarding, but it kind of has to be rewarding, right? It can't be a nuisance to you as a parent. Like your child's trauma, unfortunately, can't be a nuisance to you. But of course, it feels that way if you're drained and you're working and your work is demanding and you're plugged in 24-7, you have to make everyone happy. Of course, your child is a nuisance. That's such an interesting point and perspective. And it's bringing up a few things. One of them is, since we've been talking about how complicated it is to be a parent, no matter what, I think on the show, it's been brought up about how having children in general is about you and another person, not just about you. And it seems like there's this cultural pressure or misconception, like you're going to be happy if you have a child. I mean, that's like my mom's mindset. It's like, well, if you don't have a child, A, maybe you won't feel as fulfilled in life. And in my head, I'm thinking, but I do feel fulfilled that this is part of why I haven't felt this big pressure internally to have a child is because I don't want to have a child because I think it's going to make me happier. Like that seems so selfish. (laughs) Like because it's not about the child, it's about me being happier, not like the child. It should be about both of us feeling happy. And then this, my mother also is like, well, you're going to be lonely when you're older. Who are you going to have when you're older? I'm like, again, I'm not bringing another person into this world just to benefit me. I'm sure it's nice to have someone at the end of your life there for you. But there's not even a guarantee. I think another guest on the show, I can't remember off the top of my head who said this, but there's not even a guarantee that that child will be in your life, (laughs) right? Like by you having a child doesn't mean guarantee anything. And it's just truly not about you. And I think this is where things start to get so complicated. And going back to this idea of abortion as well, which is such a complicated subject, truly to me is not a black and white thing at all. And part of that is because you also touched upon, Wendy, there's so much at play here. It's really, in my opinion, an individual scenario because why did that person get pregnant in the first place? 
what is their situation? What would happen if they gave it up for adoption? You know, all of these factors are part of the whole decision making from the moment of conception or even the desire to have a child. Again, coming back to me right now where I've only ever had to think about it. I've never even been put in a position of maybe I've maybe had like one or two pregnancy quote scares in my whole life. And maybe that's a privilege. I've never had to worry about what I would do if I got accidentally pregnant, at least not for more than a few hours or a day. And I think that in itself is a privilege because birth control is a complicated thing and relationship. This whole thing is just incredibly complex. And what frustrates me is when people try to like make it very simple. And that goes back to the very beginning of this conversation, like adoption is not simple. And for someone like me who has had a lot of ignorance around adoption, I probably have simplified it a lot. In my head, I'm like, oh, well, it could be these are the pros and here are the cons. (laughs) It's like, no, it's so much more complicated than that because you're dealing with multiple human beings, not just one in the scenario. You have the biological family and the children and then anyone else in your life who's involved with that children, that child. One thing that's come up a lot that I hear adoptees talking about is, you know, especially in this debate, people will say like, you're here. Aren't you glad you weren't like aborted? It feels like such a weird thing to say to an adoptee specifically. One, because most of them come from child protection, for to be clear. So most of them didn't necessarily have an origin of that being a decision on the table. Like many of these parents intend to parent their children. It's other people who come and interfere, right? And so like, I think about that. And it's like, interesting for me to think about that. Because like, with that reasoning, in my mind, I could literally walk up to anyone and be like, aren't you glad you weren't aborted? (laughs) What a weird, like, aren't you glad you didn't get hit by a truck yesterday? Like, it's funny, because I feel like these things feel because of how we've learned so like obvious, like, oh, of course you asked that. Of course these are connected issues when really they feel disconnected to me because it seems to only apply in certain scenarios. No one who has a happy life has anyone marching up to them being like, oh, weren't you glad you weren't aborted? <laughs> like no one's asking that. And also, how do you answer that question? Next weird thing on that piece, just thinking of that. It's strange to me to think of this idea of having a child to fill a need for myself Because, you know, what it means to be a parent, it's literally like about bringing some being into this world that their brain will not even be capable of not being selfish for so many years. (laughs) Like kids need to get their needs met and that's how their brains work and that's what they do. And to me, it feels like you have to be in a place of being ready to give so much when you want a parent not necessarily needing something in return. And I don't think any kid, regardless of how they came to their family, you know, likes having everything that mom and dad has done for them thrown in their face. And I think the layer for adoptees specifically is we're even less allowed to feel annoyed at that because we need to be grateful for this life we've been given by these wonderful people who are just saints. And I'm telling you, like, all adopted parents are different. There's not one of them that's the same. And some of them shouldn't even be parents, in my opinion, <laughs> much less parents who adopted kids. But I totally lost my train of thought. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about how everybody is so different here. And so it's basically nothing is guaranteed, is what I'm hearing. And your life is not guaranteed to be happy on either end as a parent or as a child. And I think like when it does come to the choice of if someone has become unexpectedly pregnant, I do think everyone should have a choice for what they want to do, right? I think that's where I struggle with is if you're someone who thinks that abortion is not the right choice to make, then don't make it. The more we go around trying to apply our rules to other people, that's when things get messy, I think. And when I think about this, yeah, I do think if you become unexpectedly pregnant, you should be able to have that choice. And I think another big part of adoption is this idea that adoption means replacing what has come before. And to me, that makes me very sad because I think someone who spent nine months growing a human inside them also should not have to make the choice between all or nothing. 
You know, it's like either you can do all of the parenting and we have no idea what has led this person to make a different choice for this human being they're growing inside them. But, you know, I do think you should be able to have a choice, but it shouldn't mean that it's an all or nothing choice. And it shouldn't mean that if I choose to take the route of adoption, it means that I never get to see this child again or be part of their life. And so I think the next big shift is, you know, we're looking at adoption less as a we're replacing the parents you had before. And more of a, let's bring this whole family together. And, you know, the biological parents staying involved helps the child know where they came from, right? That's a big part of adoption is not knowing your roots. Helps the child and the parents know the medical history because that's another really big thing. If you don't have a connection to biological people, you can't answer so much medical stuff. It drives me insane. There's so much medical forms. Like, do you have a history of this? Do you have a history of this? So many adoptees don't know their history. So that's a big benefit, right? And again, it's like this idea of chosen and different ways of building family. Like, why is the goal always to create some kind of isolated nuclear family? That doesn't make any sense to me. Bring everyone together. They can all love this child. Child can't have too much love, in my opinion. I agree. And that's such an important statement there. We all need so much love. We all deserve so much love. And in a lot of ways, it's a privilege to receive love because of different circumstances that people are in. Speaking of love, something I saw, I think, on TikTok that really resonated with me a few weeks ago, I think. And it was a man talking about how his sister passed away and left behind her young daughter. And he didn't know, he wasn't alerted right away to the circumstances. And I believe from the story that the daughter was there when the mother died, I think it was from an overdose or something. So this child is not only witnessing this traumatic death, this child's completely helpless. She's not even able to alert anyone. So I don't know how the Child Protective Services, I imagine, stepped in at some point. But the brother of this woman and the uncle to this little girl was wanting to take care of her and take her in, but he wasn't allowed to. And he was sharing how frustrating the system is because of all of these rules and regulations. And it's not only incredibly hard for him, but more importantly, so hard for this child who's going through the trauma of losing a parent, but also being put in the foster care system, even though she has a family member that's ready to step in and take her in. And it was such a heartbreaking story. And I don't know if that point, I didn't follow it closely enough to see what happened with it, but it just left me thinking, wow, like that's really messed up. And I imagine based on some of the things that you've said, Wendy, that there's a lot of issues with the system and it's complex, right? Because, well, maybe there has to be a one size fits all, even though there shouldn't be, but maybe that's the easiest way for an organization, the government and, you know, a business to work. They can't make an exception for this uncle. They have to take this child and put this child into foster care because what if this uncle was abusive? What if this uncle wasn't the right person for this child? You can't just take his word for it. But at the same time, it's so hard because I can't imagine everything that young girl was going through while the government was trying to figure all this out. And here she has this uncle who all he wants her to know is that she's loved and cared for, but he can't even you know, get that across to her in a way that maybe she'll understand because he's got to go through all these other people that aren't part of the family. When a young person comes into child protection or is adopted by like a family member, they usually call it kinship. So I might use that word. We tend to see kinship as generally like a good thing. It has its own unique challenges and ways of supporting, but it tends to be helpful to keep relationships with kin and not necessarily have to live with them, but make sure that that relationship is really tended to, right? So I mean, I think what you point out is perfect in terms of what the system is and how it looks at any given situation. Because the system has a checklist of you should live in a two-bedroom apartment, you can't sleep in all of these things, which have good reasons, right? I'm not saying that these things that they check and balance don't have good reasons, but they often create barriers for people who really want to create relationship who can't in a kinship. And that's a perfect example. You know, like a, maybe a grandparent steps forward and they really want to take care of a kiddo, but they are on retirement money and they can't pay for it. And so what the system will do is instead of saying, let's help out this grandparent take care of this kid, they say, no, we only get money if we take the kid into child welfare, right? And we can only give that money to approved foster parents and group homes. 
And so there's all this systems of checks and balances. And again, I'm not really saying good or bad because what I can tell you about a system of checks and balances is sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. What I find it depends more on is the human doing the work and what they're thinking about and how much they can check their own biases and how much they can think of this child as a human being that is suffering rather than a thing I have to put somewhere, which I think sometimes is the attitude because it is a very high, like intense situation, right? It's a moment where like you do have to find housing for a child that's very stressful. But there's also so many things to think about on that journey. And we actually, I'm a trainer for a program called Never Too Late. And at Never Too Late, what we focus on is most in child protection, you like leave the system at some point. So when you're in child protection, the state is like your legal guardian. And at some point they're like, bye. And so they terminate their legal guardianship of you and you get kicked out of foster care. And it's all this really super great fun stuff. Shaking my head in case people can't hear the sarcasm in my voice. And what this program has realized is that the young people who end up transitioning out of the system without families deserve families just as much as the next person. And so we train people basically in how to adopt these adults because by the time they're aging out, they're, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, even up to 25 and older. I mean, I'm part of the program. I'm 30. And it was really sad because there was a particular couple in this training who I think has a lot of really amazing skills and things to offer a young person who the system said no to because their own background had been impacted by abuse. One of these two people wasn't actually connected to their biological family. And again, the system said, well, if you don't have like a strong family network, you can't adopt. And it's like, I've trained them for eight weeks. They're going to do good. <laughs> like, I know these people. They're great. They're great humans. They're going to do good. We particularly are very intentional about building community at Never Too Late so that no one's out there floating and doesn't have anyone to talk to about what they're going through, which is really important because the average person, as you know, doesn't know a lot about adoption. And so like if I were to come to you and be like, oh my God, my adopted kid, I'm having this issue, this issue, and this issue, you might not have the right knowledge base to help me figure out what's going on in that situation, right? Just because maybe you're not parenting or you're parenting biologically. So we're really intentional to build that. But there's a lot of the ways that the system is set up in almost superficial ways. I think that is very, very harmful. And like that, again, brings me back to that idea of most young people are apprehended due to issues that there is a lot of contributing factors to that I don't think is any one individual's responsibility. When the system fails you and you experience racism or homophobia and the world tells you you don't belong and that you don't deserve human rights. And like, these are like people who get beat down. Like we hate poor people as a society. It's wild to me how much we hate poor people, but it's so obvious to me. And I just think money is just a bunch of bullshit. I mean, like capitalism is just like, we made this thing up. We decided it controls everything. <laughs> Mostly numbers in the ether, in bank accounts in various places. <laughs> And like, you're telling me, you know, Jeff Bezos can fucking go to the moon, but my mom can't get a $100 stipend to help her quit smoking drugs and because she can't work because she's mentally ill. Like, come on. Real issues here, people. <laughs> and instead, I get taken out of my home, put into the system. And I ended up in a relationship with adoptive parents who were, I consider, emotionally abusive. And so my biological mom struggled with mental health and addiction. But she's like my emotional rock a lot, right? She's my human. She's my person. She means I have a very good relationship with her. And you put me in this other place thinking it would be better for me. And really, it ended up causing a lot of issues. I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shout outs. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. 
If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for this show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message, and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks. I'm so grateful for you sharing all of this, not just your personal experiences, Wendy, but a lot of the common things that go on because if you haven't been in it, you don't really know. And that leads me to, I think, a very important question is, what can we do to help improve the system? (laughs) You know, instead of just feeling angry and frustrated and powerless, there are things that we can do on an individual level, whether or not we have any connection to adoption Although perhaps we do in a lot of ways. Like I said, off the top of my head, I can think of at least one person I know who was adopted. And maybe there's something I can do in that person's life. Perhaps someone listening is thinking about adoption for themselves. Either they're going through the process of wanting to put up a child for adoption or adopt a child. And then there are other people who maybe feel like they have no connection to it, but they just want to do something to make this better. Like we can break it up into different categories or maybe there's a really good starting place for everyone. And then we can kind of funnel into our own individual situations. But where do we go from here is the simplest way to ask this. How do we help? Yeah, I love that. And I think this is my opportunity to shamelessly plug my book. (laughs) Really actually in this space a lot, and I don't say this tongue in cheek, we say we have a term called first voice advocates. And so that's anyone with living experience. And so listening to adoptees and honoring and letting yourself feel challenged by certain ideas, I think is really important. I would say that's something everyone can do. Just let yourself be challenged. Ask why you have a certain opinion, how you got there. Maybe look into reading a little bit more about trauma. I think the more trauma-informed we become as a society, the better we'll just be. Um, because in one way or another, you probably interact with young people from child welfare or who have been adopted at work, in education. You know, you can't necessarily do something for your barista at Starbucks. Um, (laughs) But when we can learn about these things, we can learn to attune to the humans and what they need and ask better, more curious questions too, right? Because I think And it's interesting because we kind of, we have this discussion going on right now in society about this idea of like cancel culture. And I think there's like really extreme polarization happening right now. And there's some space in the middle where we can honestly ask questions and try and find answers and honestly let ourselves be challenged by that. But also give people space to kind of fuck it up sometimes, you know, like, and not because this is such an unusual and unique experience it's hard to understand from the outside looking in. I think that's true of a lot of life experiences that really define us. Anything that really defines us, I think, is like almost impossible to understand. But as you can learn to understand those things, you know, you might now, if you take one thing away from this podcast, maybe don't tell an adoptee that they should be grateful. Like, if you've learned that, you're doing better than most of the population. (laughs) Because when adoptees speak up about adoption being hard and challenging, they get backlash. And it's, you should be grateful that you got this life given to you. And it's like, what does that mean? I also have to be grateful for the intergenerational that impacted trauma that impacted my mom and her addiction and the time she almost tried to kill herself. Like, do I have to be really grateful for all the stuff that led to my adoption? Like, really? It feels that way. And so like, even if you take that away from this podcast, I think that's like a blessing because I think that can help make a bit of a fundamental shift in the way we think about it. And it's like a number one, I think, contention for adoptees everywhere is that do not tell me to be grateful. (laughs) My life was shitty and that's how I got here, (laughs) right? And there's a lot of hard things that got me here and everyone makes meaning out of their pain in different ways. I don't think we should force people to make meaning out of their pain in any one particular way or at all. Sometimes it's nice to say this has just been really shitty. (laughs) But in terms of that, I think that's like a really good baseline. And so if you're interested in listening to adoptee voices, You can get my book, which is called The Heart That Silence Built, which is actually a poetry anthology. It's a collection of things I've written between the ages of 12 and 30. So I just turned 30 the same year that we recorded this podcast. So I just published this book a few months ago. And it really speaks to a lot of the nuances of my struggle for identity 
in an adoptive home that really rejected everything that came from my past or from before. And so that would be a good way to kind of look at reading adoptee books. And another book I just kind of tell everyone about all the time lately is What Happened to You by Oprah and Gabor Mate. I was really shocked to learn that Oprah has actually been like involved in studying like adverse childhood experiences and childhood trauma since like the 80s. (laughs) So when I heard that this book came out and her name was on it, I was like very confused. But apparently she's been doing that work for a long time. And it's I find this stuff like in child welfare and like neuroscience and trauma, there's so much like clinical, like brain, like what the fuck are you talking about right now? And this particular novel like does make it very accessible. And I think we'll all learn things about ourselves the more we learn about trauma because we've all got a little bit at least peppered in there. We all experience difficult things and all of us learn to adapt to our environment. And so the environment we're in has such a significant impact on how we react to things in the future. And so knowing that and knowing that like if you're having trouble being in relationship with someone and you know they're an adoptee, that might just be something that you know like, oh, like I know adoptees struggle with loss of relationships. So maybe this is a particular trigger. Like adoptees really will push people away and test relationships. And because one thing we've learned our lives is that all the people who've cared for us before haven't been able to handle us you know, we've been moved around. Uh, many people experience multiple child welfare placements. I've known people who have moved 20 times before they turn 19. And how do you learn to build meaningful long-term relationships if that's your childhood experience? And so I think sometimes we think people are doing things just to drive us nuts. <laughs> and then sometimes we can remind ourselves that there's a lot of experiences in this person that led them here. How can I be compassionate about that? And I think that it benefits everyone, but specifically those who have significant trauma. That is so valuable and beautifully articulated. I'm so grateful for that. That was going to be my final question, which was how to have more compassion. And you just answered it. And that is so important. I think with many things in life, it starts with awareness. And you have given me so much more awareness. And then you've helped me learn how to be more compassionate and also given me resources for being less ignorant about this. It's something that maybe some people have the privilege of not paying attention to because they don't see it affecting their lives very much. But perhaps this will open my eyes and help me realize like there might be people that I don't even, I didn't realize that they were adopted, right? Like maybe they just don't talk about it. Maybe we don't know each other that well yet. And I think once we start to learn more about it. Yeah. I'm really sorry, but No, please. It's really funny because I'm also queer. And so I always kind of related this idea of coming out to both like my queer identity and like my adopted identity, because just like people assume you're heterosexual, they also assume you come from biological parents and that's like what your life has looked like. And so it is sometimes like that coming out experience. And I feel like people kind of understand that in the queer community. So like if that helps you like It can be awkward for me to be like, hi, like I have four moms and three dads because I have a bio dad and an adoptive dad and a father-in-law and I have a stepmom and a foster mom and a biological mom and a mother-in-law. Like I have to figure out based on how I know you, am I going to tell you which mom I'm talking about? If this is a five minute interaction, I'm not going to explain adoption to you. I'm just going to say my mom. And so like I do kind of have that. I hesitate to necessarily talk about it a lot just in like passing conversation, because it just gets complicated and weird. And then I have that moment where I'm like, okay, this is like a permanent relationship. It's time to like, (laughs) spill the beans on this insane family life I have. (laughs) I'm so glad that you said that. That's incredibly important. And it, it goes back to, in my opinion, one of the most important social things to keep in mind is to not make assumptions about someone else and know that our experiences are likely, if not guaranteed, to be very different from theirs. And You know, for someone like me who grew up in a very white part of the state that I was in and a privileged financial area. And it seems like where I grew up, the more and more I speak to other people through this podcast, I'm like, wow, like (laughs) I was like the plain white granola, all American bubble. And sometimes I wish that I didn't grow up that way because it's like, I have to train myself now to realize that not everybody grew up that way, right? And it goes back to something we brought up earlier about as a kid, like all you know is that world 
that you're placed in with your parents and your friends and whoever else is taking care of you and the school system, all these factors about looking outside of those blinders. And that I'm so grateful for you, Wendy, for educating me and reminding me not to make assumptions. And I think ultimately it's about asking more questions than trying to project a belief onto somebody, respecting someone's boundaries, waiting for them to share and open up to your point. For some reason, this is reminding me of it, but I had this moment with a stranger yesterday and it was such a good like teaching lesson for me because without getting into the details of it, this person said something that I misunderstood and I got so embarrassed because I was like, oh no, like, do they think I'm so ignorant and that I misunderstood them because we're so different? And I felt so self-conscious because sometimes I'm like afraid of offending someone, right? (laughs) Because like I'm misunderstanding them somehow. And it's very humbling because it's like, yeah, I did misunderstand this person in that moment. You know, they don't know me and they don't probably don't care about me and they go on with their life and maybe they're irritated that we had this misunderstanding. And it was like humbling in the sense of like, that's going to happen. Sometimes you're going to upset someone or offend somebody or make a mistake. Whenever that happens, it's an opportunity for me to step back and say, okay, like, how could I handle things differently next time and like try not to make assumptions? And that to me has been an ongoing lesson. So Wendy, thank you for that too. And it's just like my curiosity naturally opens up in conversations like this. I feel like I'll be reflecting on other people in my life and recognizing how much this is actually interwoven in my life without me realizing and how much more I have to learn. So thank you for sharing from the heart. Thank you for writing a book that allows people like myself to learn more. I'm going to link to your book in the show notes. So for the listener, everything is compiled in one easy place for you at the podcast website, which is wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you find this episode or when you find this episode, I should say, there's a search bar you can type in (laughs) adoption. And since this is the one of, if not the only times that has come up on the show, you'll find it quite easily or type in Wendy's name. When you find the episode, there's a full transcript So you can read through this. There are quotes in there. There's a video link on YouTube. There is a whole resource section that includes Wendy's book, the other books and people that she mentioned, links to anything relevant and her bio plus your social media. So you can just dive right in and learn right alongside with me again at wellevator.com in the podcast show notes. And Wendy, I am just so honored that you spent all this time and shared so much and wish you nothing but the best with this book and just very touched by everything that you're doing for the world. So thank you. Thank you so much, Whitney. And thanks for providing a space like this. I feel like we would benefit a lot more from being able to have these kind of honest conversations. Me too. We all got to chip away at it and create more open dialogue, even in uncomfortable things and admitting our mistakes and our ignorances for everything that we have to learn, I feel like is the only way that we can learn by admitting what we don't know and where we have room for improvement. So thanks for leaning into all of that with me, Wendy. Awesome. I love it. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.